Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Alaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Ilaria. And I'm Daphne. And today we are lucky to be chatting with Dr. Dan Siegel. I feel like if you've been listening to Mom Brain for a while, you might have heard a number of his books recommended by other guests we've had on the show, which is always a great sign. Um, his book, The Whole Brain Child, was one of my favorites and one of the only ones I actually read when, you know, when you buy like a library of preparing for baby books before you have your first kid and all of them go unread and sit at your sit on your bedside table for about 400 years. Um, this was one of the books I actually did read and it really, I found it very empowering as a parent to um, be learning about how to support my child through the eventual growth and education she would have in terms of not just, you know, being a functioning person in the world, but internally, like her emotional health, integrating the two halves of her brain, letting her, this was obviously I was pregnant with Philomena, letting her feel um, her greatest sense of self-knowing and power in the world as a result of that. And it was a a lot of it began with reading this book. Anyway, we're going to chat with him today about brain integration, about um, what was the word that he kept saying was not about attachment and about how we as parents can overcome the things that we dealt with as as children ourselves so we don't pass them along to our children, how we give them the gift of mindsight, which is how they can uh, – well, whatever. We're going to give you all it's, secrets. It's going to – I know. You well, you know what? It's, it might seem complicated at the beginning, but what you're going to find – and we will have these experts that we talk to that are – they just seem like we're doing everything wrong. You look at your home. You're like, oh, my God, I'm not doing that. I would say take it this way. Doing more is better than doing nothing. So baby steps. And really what this is about is teaching our kids, as he called it, to listen to their own inner compass, to develop their own inner compass so that eventually they just know themselves. And when they don't know it, they have the skills to problem solve and they can start to figure it out. Um, So you're going to see this is one of the episodes that Daphne and I talk very, very little. Um, I hope that this is one that you really share with your friends because I do think that he is helping to make the next generation better than the last. And hopefully, again, I mean, I feel like some of his his teachings are timeless, as we've talked about. His book has been around for so long. Um, so please enjoy, listen to it many, many times and, and practice. Everything is practice. It's not perfection. You don't have to get it right. Your kids don't have to get it right. But just a little bit and le- teaching our kids to listen to themselves and their feelings and be able to articulate that is extremely important. My name is Dan Siegel, and I'm the executive director of the Mindsight Institute and the co-author with Tina Payne Bryson of The Power of Showing Up and a number of other parenting books. I feel like we've talked about your books in the past, but the a guest that we had on in our last recording session actually said that The Whole Brain Child was one of her all-time favorite recommendations. Um, I just want to first of all say thank you. I, I think you were the <laughs> it was it was one of the first books that I was given as a new parent um that I read probably well before my kids were actually cogent enough to be talking, but it it for it informed the way that I started even at that pace of like talking to them, talking around them, helping them integrate the two halves of their brain. So for people who aren't familiar with the whole brain child, um is is you know if you gave a quick synopsis of it what would that be 
I would say to you, Daphne, what would the synopsis be for you? What was most helpful? I mean, because I can go on and on. I Last night, I just finished the original book, the third edition of a book called The Developing Mind, where there's over 2,000 references for this third edition. Um, and The Whole Brain Child came out of that book. So it's basically translating for parents uh, a synthesis of the science of development and what we can do as parents to use that science in a very practical way. So you're mentioning bringing the two sides of the brain together. The fundamental idea is that a process called integration, where you allow things to be different, but then you bring them together and they don't lose their differences in the linkages. Um, that's called integration. And through a long line of scientific reasoning, and I literally just pressed the send button a few hours ago to the publisher in New York for this next edition. You know, thank you. Thank you. It's uh, so exciting because the proposals from the 1990s that integration was the base of health have upheld over 25 years. And I had 18 interns work with me to try to disprove that those simple statements um, were correct. Let's see if we can disprove that. And they, they couldn't. We had a lot of fun trying to do that. So it's very exciting that after 25 years, that notion that if you can look at things in a system like a brain or a relationship, like between the two of you or you and your spouses, you know, when you honor differences and then thrive with those differences, but then compassionately link with communication, that's when wonderful things happen. And when that doesn't happen, you get chaotic, you get rigid. So that's the whole the whole thing of the whole brain child is Tina Payne Bryson was my student. She was having a little kid at home, six months of age. Then she started studying with me and she's a wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher. And we, um, over the years, would see her kids being raised with this integration approach. Uh, and so we decided to write um, the whole brain child together. It's a first book. We have another one coming out called The Power of Showing Up. Um, but it's fun to kind of combine the science with practical tips, both as clinicians, we're both clinicians, but also as parents ourselves. So, you know, it's got all these layers of science and stories and practical tips and realizing there's no such thing as perfect parenting. And, you know, that's, that's what the whole brain child is all about. I mean, I think every, every parent, as you say, wants to have our children to be happy and passionate and motivated and self-sufficient eventually. My that's my biggest concern. My biggest concern is that there's so much that's going on the whole Finsta, the fake Instagram account, what's happening at school that you don't hear about, what's happening on their phone that you don't know about, what's happening in this video game that they're even if you don't have video games in your house that they're playing at other kids' homes. How can we create a a strong individual or help our children become their own strong individuals? through these years where really bad things are starting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take it step by step. And Daphne, are you okay? Cause you look like you were very concerned what Laurie was saying. Was there something on your mind? Oh you no, that was, that was my eager engaged face. <laughs> I know I don't have resting bitch face. I just have like weird furrowed brow <laughs> intensity face. <laughs> no, no, no. Cause that, these issues are so important. I mean, let's, we'll start with the first step. Cause if you take everything all at once, it can feel absolutely overwhelming. And, um, you know, myself, uh, you know, I wanted to really understand what do we know from science, not just different people's opinions about development and 
you know, I mean, I was trained originally in pediatrics and then psychiatry and then child psychiatry and then became a researcher in attachment, which is basically studying what do we know from science about how parents interact with children and then how the children turn out. Then, no matter how they turn out, they enter the, the world and you're raising some really, really important issues about the world. So let's just take a step back and say, as a parent, one of the most important science findings that will guide you in a really helpful way is the research finding that if you take the time to become present as a parent, which means a number of things, it means you being able to explore what happened to you when you were a kid and understand the impact of your childhood on you and then make sense of those things that happened. So you can really have what's called a coherent self-understanding. That's the fancy term coherent. It means you say, bring it on. I'm open to learning about anything that happened to me. I don't have to avoid anything. And whatever emotions might arise, like let's say helplessness, just as an example, oh my God, I was so helpless as a kid. And that was so terrifying when I was helpless with when I was three or four or whatever. Now I'm a parent. If I'm getting ready to launch my kid into kindergarten after preschool, and I realize it's going to start getting complicated and I read the news about depression and suicide and young people, I might start feeling helpless. So the first thing to say is, and this is why I wrote the book Parenting from the Inside Out with my daughter's preschool director, Mary Hartzell, because it's a book that teaches parents how to go inward, reflect on what happened to them when they were kids and make sense of their life so that the research is clear. If you had a horrible childhood, if you make sense of what happened to you, your children will do fabulously. But if you don't make sense of it, that's the most challenging thing because you have all sorts of issues of shame and ways of fragmenting inside your own mind. So Parenting from the Inside Out is a book that for me, if I hadn't written it, I would never write these other books. Because I, I personally, as a scientist, really believe in staying really close to what science tells you is valid or not valid. And you got to be careful if people use the word attachment because a lot of attachment approaches are not based on attachment science. So as an attachment scientist, this finding of a coherent narrative, this making sense is the first place to begin. So that may involve writing in a journal. It may involve doing you know, reflective conversations with your friends. It may involve going to a therapist if it really gets rough. Um, it can involve, you know, doing our book. It's like a workbook, Parenting from the Inside Out. But once you've done that step, then let's come to the next step, which is as your child is developing, what do we know about the parent-child relationship that actually can provide our children what we want for them, you know, to allow them to become resilient in the face of all the challenges that we can't even imagine the world is going to have in the years ahead. You know, so this next point is that what you are doing as parents is helping your child construct what you can simply call an internal compass. You can't control the world. Right. And the world is getting really, really hard really hard, you know, and it's just going to get more challenging. And unfortunately, that's the situation. And we can talk about that in a moment. But 
just to stay with what you can do. So what is an internal compass? An internal compass is your child's ability, number one, to be loved by you. Number two, to have you show what's called mindsight, where you help your child literally develop the circuits in her brain so that she or he or they, you know, are going to literally have the capacity to reflect on what's going on in their heart, for example, what's going on in their intestines, literally the organ in your chest called your heart, the organ in your belly called your intestines, have neural networks around them that are brains, basically. And the head brain is actually the third brain. And it's in service of these other ones. But mostly what happens once you launch your kid into preschool and into then kindergarten and beyond is they're only developing the head brain and mostly the left side of that head brain. So you got, in terms of a whole brain, you've got this brain in your heart, a brain in your intestine, a right side of your brain and a left side of your brain that are actually quite independent from each other. And having an internal compass means you bring them all together. So that as you launch your kid into preschool, into kindergarten, or in my case, you know, they are launched to college and now they both have uh, careers they're pursuing, you know, you can have the incredible joy that they have an internal compass that no matter where they are in life, with relationships, with things they're doing, with travels, whatever happens, they've got that internal compass of judgment, of self-understanding, of compassion, of kindness. They can be kind to themselves, kind to others. They have a sense of meaning and purpose. So when we say internal compass, that's really what your job is. And, and, and a third point, as we go on these most important issues, I think, for parents is that, you know, when you show up in this way, when you're present, you've done your homework, you've said, this is what my child was like. You don't have to say that to your kid. You say it to yourself or your spouse. <laughs> this isn't about like, let me sit down with you and give you what happened in therapy with me today to your four-year-old. No, it's your own self-understanding that you never have to disclose to anybody, but you know what it is, you know. And that gives you something called presence, which is giving you this capacity to be in awareness and showing up for your kids, showing up emotionally where they can be really agitated or angry. And you teach them that in that relationship, there's a space that you can create called presence. Where if they're angry, you don't get angry at them being angry. You say, tell me more about it. <laughs> oh, really? So, and tell me more. And they go, what? You know, and that's what presence is. It gives a space. And what it teaches your kid is that, whoa, I can feel anything, not do anything, but I can feel anything. And the feeling arises like a wave. And instead of being scared of waves or keeping out of the water or being crushed by them, I learn how to surf. An internal compass is my parents have taught me to surf the waves of my inner mental life. That's called mindset. So basically, you know, we can't control life. We can't control the world. Um, we never have been able to, but especially now. And so that's the beginning. And if you want, we can dive into this really, really concerning issue about depression, anxiety, and suicide that is, um, yeah. I think it really is, when you look at the research, it really is increasing. It's not just we're more aware of it. Like with autism, it may be, in fact, it's not increasing. It's just we're more aware of it. But with depression, anxiety, I think it's a different thing. And, you know, these suicide rates are, are climbing. 
Well, so let's let's dive in on that a little bit because I do think part of what was so resonant and and ultimately empowering about what I was reading in your books was that humans experience emotion. It's a it's a feature of us. It is what it's probably what makes us best. Um, but but teaching humans how to process their emotions is not something that it's there's no guidebook for that or there wasn't you know, until you wrote until you wrote these books. Can, and I and I do I don't I do want to go back to the very scary rising incidents of depression and suicidal thoughts and um, and and the negativity that surrounds all of us um, and particularly with regard to parenting our children. But I want to start first at the at maybe the positive side of it, which is how do we get our kids to understand their emotions and how do we help them process them in a way that is that is helpful and empowering to them, not debilitating? How do we help them learn through them? Right. Well, Daphne, that's that's the really important practical question. And, you know, in the developing mind, this third edition that I just turned in last night, um, you know, I, I, out, I outline the incredible research that academicians have done, which basically answers the question in a very simple way. Parents who talk to their children using language about the inner nature of their experience have children who develop the capacity to be aware of that inner experience. And as you know, Fred Rogers said, and if you watch his you know, presentation to the Congress from years ago, and Tom Hanks did a beautiful job you know, uh, talking about this, when, when emotions are mentionable, they're manageable. And it's that simple. I, I call it name it to tame it. You know, that literally, if you look in the brain and some colleagues at UCLA did this study, when something is presented to you and it makes you all emotional, if you can name it accurately. So let's say it's a, a man's face who's looking very distressed or something like that. And you start feeling that man's emotion. If you just said, is it man or woman? It doesn't do anything. But if you say he's angry, just using the linguistic term, the word anger, naming it gets the brain to calm down instead of getting all agitated and burning out basically in that moment you learn okay i can and this is the way i like to think about it. it's an analogy and we can talk about the brain side of it if you want but here's the analogy think about your child having a container of consciousness we all do and each of us have a container that's different sizes so imagine that you're born with a container that's about the size of an espresso cup and a challenge like an intense emotion or a disappointment, a friend is mad at you at school or whatever. Let's, let's think about that like a tablespoon of salt, okay? So if your consciousness is the size of an espresso cup and you have water filling it up, and here comes this tablespoon of salt dumped into your consciousness, mix it up, and you try to drink that kind of consciousness with that amount of salt, what's it going to taste like? Salty. Salty, too salty to take in. You you really shouldn't drink that, and it overwhelms you. Now, imagine a kid who's been raised by parents who teach them to have a, a spaciousness inside of them. So their consciousness container is now the size of a hundred gallons. Mm -hmm. Outside they look the same, but inside they're different. Maybe they've had time for these reflective dialogues or other things we can talk about. We can do now. Here comes the life challenge of a tablespoon of salt. You dump it into a 100-gallon container, mix it up, and now you sip the water. What does it taste like? Fresh water. No problem. 
that's what an internal compass does. It allows a child to have this internal spaciousness where they can say, you know, I have this really big feeling of anger right now, and it's making me feel like I want to punch somebody. Um, I don't know what to do with it versus I'm so angry. You know, right. now the difference between saying I'm angry versus I'm feeling anger may sound subtle, but it's actually huge. One is a mindset statement. There's a feeling of anger in me. The other is I'm identifying as I'm just anger. I, I am anger, basically. So, so bringing that further into practice, because I feel like this is a really great learning point, not just for us, but for our listeners. So I've been working on this with my six-year-old um, in terms of, you know, she would get, ang- get angry about things or sad or, and you don't really know why. And so the past couple weeks, we've been doing a lot of that. I'm feeling this way. Um, and now, so she'll, she'll say to me, mommy, I'm feeling really sad and I don't know why, or I'm feeling really angry and I don't know why. So where, now that she's able to say, I'm feeling this, where do I go from there? Okay. Excellent. Excellent questions you guys have. So the first thing to say is that it's beautiful. She's able to say, I'm feeling this anger. That's great. Rather than punching her brother or, you know, and just being <laughs> angry, she can say, I am a person with consciousness, basically. And there is something entering my consciousness that's an emotion. And I'm even able to label it. It's called anger. So I am feeling means I have that more spacious container of consciousness that I can see there's a thing popping up in consciousness rather than being consumed by it. So that's fantastic. So now what you can do, and this is um, a very uh, simple statement, but it has huge implications if we know the science of it, um, which I'll tell you about in a moment, where you can say to your daughter, one thing that's really helpful is to just notice where you feel that in your body. Because the minute she's labeled it as anger, it's actually way up in the higher part of the brain, which is fine. And labeling it is great. But its origins are in the body and lower parts of the brain beneath the parts that label things. So what you're doing now is something called vertical integration. So the first statement was called bilateral integration, meaning she's filled with a bunch of stuff from her body. It's coming up through the lower parts of her brain. It hits first the right side of her brain where there's, for most of us, no language, but she's using her left-sided language system to say, mommy, I am, and that's her left brain talking because it's words, feeling something, and now she's going over to the right saying, it's anger, and that's way up here. So the next step is to let her go to what was beneath that, and beneath it doesn't mean it's less than or anything like that. I mean, like, physically, when you're standing up, it's like lower. So you're going, you're saying, well, what did you feel? And then, and then you say, well, what do you, she goes, what do you mean? What do I feel? Well, just take a moment. Now notice your chest or notice your lungs breathing or your heart. Notice your belly. Notice your muscles. Notice your face. Is it tight? How are your shoulders? Just notice your body. Now, amazingly, that, that perception of the interior has a formal name called intero for interior exception. Studies have shown that when kids have learned this or adults <laughs> learn it, you increase the size of a very important area of the brain called the insula, especially on the right side of the brain. 
which allows you to have self-awareness. So I can say, whoa, my heart's really pounding fast, mommy. Um, I feel like my chest is going to explode. Oh, my God, my tummy is telling me there's something really bad happening or my muscles are really tight. All of that, to be able to say any of that stuff is called interoception. Kids who can do that, adolescents who can do it, adults who can do it, have the beginning of that internal compass we're talking about. And amazingly, if you stay with your bodily sensation, going to the source, this is like the magic trick of therapy, is that when you go to the source and just give it space, it arises like a wave and passes away. But if it's only left up at the head, and especially if you say, oh, I shouldn't be angry, I shouldn't be angry, I don't like this feeling, I don't like this feeling, the feeling will hang on. It's almost as if the heart and the intestines are trying to tell the head brain something. And as long as that head brain keeps on saying, I shouldn't be angry, I shouldn't be angry, this is uncomfortable, no, 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 no. When you push something away, an emotion away, it intensifies. And that's why people have it for long, long, long periods. Same thing is true if you try to cling to something. If you say, I'm so happy my friends are coming over for this party. I want to stay happy like this forever. I want to be happy like this forever. Oh, my God. It's not going to be a good scene, right? Because no one's happy forever. So when you cling to something, when you push it away, you actually create these emotional difficulties. And everything becomes stormy. And you're basically, this is not a nice thing to say, but you're basically imprisoned by shoulds. So you can say you're shooting on yourself. You know, so you say, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't feel that way. You know, there's all these expectations you have. So part of this larger container of consciousness is to teach your child, oh, I see you, you have an angry feeling. Here's something that I learned today that's really helpful. Just notice your body. Now, in the noticing of the body, there's this big space that's created that you don't have to do anything with that sensation in the body. You just say, whoa, my, my tummy feels like it's all in knots. Just stay with that. You're just bringing something up, which is uh, someone said this to me, and it was kind of an epiphany for young children, which is that they don't realize their emotion is impermanent. They get angry. They feel angry and they feel like it's going to be there forever. And then it gets overwhelming. It's, it's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, completely, completely. Yeah. And even just telling them that, you know, and you can even draw it out. You know, you're, here's your angry face. Here's what you're doing right now. And pretty soon cross that out, you're going to be over here and you're going to be okay. And just letting them feel that freedom, that that the way that they feel is uh, is transient and malleable and changeable and that they have some ability to ride that wave, which I love that. I love that idea that you are nimble, you know, more nimble than we might have been in the past, which is the question that I have. You know, you said your books are as relevant today as they were 20 years ago when you wrote the initial proposal for them. Um and I, I think I think parenting has probably changed in that time, though. So are you dealing with what are some of the unique challenges of parenting today that you've had to adapt your strategies to accommodate for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, this is this is a, 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 an interesting bridge to that. I mean, to bridge from what we were just talking about to this really important issue of how things change. You know, in the whole brain child, we put this wheel of awareness which just lets a kid see visually how they can sit in the center of the wheel, the hub, and have different emotions arise on the rim. And that's been just incredibly useful for kids to be able to do that. Now, 
as parenting has changed, because the world has changed, here's what um, some of the biggest challenges in the last 20 years have become. Number one, these objects called digital gadgets, you know, smartphones, computers. Um, I think number one, the distraction factor where I, I live near a, an elementary school where both our kids went for some of that time of being in school. And um, I'll walk around with my dogs and, you know, I'll see parents, fathers or mothers on their phone as they're carrying their kid for blocks and blocks and blocks and not interacting with their kid. Um, you will see people in restaurants. I mean, I was once with my wife at a restaurant in New York and uh, some people showed up from another country. They were celebrating the first birthday of their little baby. She was so cute. So they all sit down, we're at the table next to them, and they, um, they give her her present. She kind of rips open this thing. It's a smartphone. You're kidding no. me. No. And for the rest of the birthday party lunch, the three of them were on their phones doing whatever. <laughs> Oh my gosh! It was uh, I actually took a They're picture like, oh, of that. We're done with parenting. Uh, one and done. When you oh said, my first birthday. Yeah, on the I've first birthday. I've never heard that before. But it's you see this all the time. So uh, so let's just say that let's start with a simple thing. One thing that has changed in the last twenty years is the attention span of humanity, and let's just talk about America. The attention span of people has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. And people are very um, uh, pulled to those screens. They're addictive. Literally, they yeah. secrete dopamine and you get very addicted to them. And you also space out with them, right? So we all have the experience where you can get on the social media thing and it go, you realize now an hour has gone by and it felt like two minutes. You know, and that's not just because you're in like some deep meditation. It's because you're in a <laughs> trance. You're in this kind of trance-like state. So, so that's one thing that's changed. What's related to that, and two colleagues of mine, Patricia Kuehl and Andrew Meltzoff, did a study. It's public, so I can talk about it. You know, where parents were so excited with technology and they were using these, I won't even name what it is, but they were using, you know, a video teaching program to teach very young children language, right? And so these researchers, after a very large corporation bought that company for a large sum of money and were now selling it to the American public, well, the world public, saying this will help your kid learn language. So they studied that. And sure enough, the kids learned less language. So, of course, lawsuits ensued. Um, but the, the point for us is that parents thought this would be a great babysitter. And it was marketed as, oh, your kid will be better here. And, and it's not that the video program teaching language was bad. It's just that it replaced face-to-face -face relational time, which is what's happening with smartphones and computers and tablets, is that people are spending so much time. I, I was on an airplane from New York to LA, and you know, I'm busy writing whatever, except where I do a lot of get a lot of writing done. But I keep on looking to my left. There's a father with his son on his lap. I'm telling you, the two of them were on their own screens for that five and a half hour flight. I don't think they said more than a minute's worth to each other. So here's the story. We learn mindsight through face-to-face -face interactions. 
Can you just d- define mindsight for people? Because I don't, I don't want to gloss that. I think it's a really critical word that we remember. Yeah. So, so I'll tell you what it is, and I'll give you a really, really brief story about where the word came from. Um, but mindsight is the ability to sense the mental life, the subjective experience of emotions, thoughts memories, hopes, longings, desires, intentions, beliefs, all the stuff of the mind falls under the category subjective experience. So we're not using the word mind here to compare it to the heart or or to emotions. Like some people use the word mind for intellect. That's not at all what I mean by it. I mean, anything that is in your subjective world, like I'm, I'm feeling angry, mommy, or I'm feeling scared, or I'm feeling hopeless. Those are all subjective experience, so they fall into the word mind. When um, you look at how the brain functions or how relationships function, let me give you an example, and you can tell me which parent is using mindsight and teaching mindsight and which one's not. A kid is um, walking down the street, trips over this kind of elevated thing on the, the sidewalk, falls down and starts crying, and a father goes over to him, leans down, pulls him up by the elbow and says, get up. Story number two, same thing, kid walking down, trips, cries, father leans down, says, oh, that must have been so scary for you. You just didn't see that bump in the sidewalk. Come here, let me hold you. Oh, wow, that that probably hurts, doesn't it, that skin knee you have. You know, these things happen and you'll see, you'll feel better really soon. Here's the bottom line to summarize them all. Parents who use something called mental state language, who don't just say how you're feeling and wait, but who actually put words to mental experience, teach their kids how to do that. Mm. So, you know, I'm not saying you should tell your kid how they feel, but you want to teach them even for your own life, you know, that speaking about the mind, this is what I call mindsight, is really important. So like when I was in medical school, the story I was going to tell, which I'll tell very briefly, is it came to be very clear after I went and dropped out and then went back and made up this word mindsight that um, in the medical profession, mindsight is painfully absent in people who have really fabulous you know, intellects and physical sight. So they can do an exam on someone, they can do lab tests, they can understand the physiology, understand the biochemistry, come up with the diagnosis, and act as if there's no inner subjective experience to their patient or to themselves. It's mindsightless, most medical training programs. And yet a study that was done about 10 years ago now showed that if someone comes in for a common cold, and one person comes, one, this is two compare, comparison groups. One person comes in, okay, they have fever, runny nose, doctor examines them, says, okay, I think you have a cold. I want you to take lots of fluids, rest, and get a lot of sleep. Fine, they go. Next group, doctor does the same thing, only this time for like about 30 seconds. They say something like, Ilaria, aren't you uh, a student and it's May? Oh, yeah. Don't you have exams? Yeah. Oh, I am, I imagine. This must be so frustrating for you to be having a cold when you're taking your final exams. That's it. And, and you go, yeah, it is frustrating for me. 
that group of patients got over their cold a day sooner, and their, when they tested, tested their blood, their immune system was much more robust at fighting the virus. 30 seconds of empathy. Because you nurtured them. That's so you crazy. Well, I mean, That's interesting. Everyone's all up on this bi- microbiome right now, and gut health is like on the tip of everyone's tongue. But that that process of gut brain, heart brain, and head brain all being in concert and actually being able to see the scientific changes in a body that results when that happens is kind of like revolutionary. Yeah. No, it I feel is. Like well, now, now so, so, but if I can just say, so Daphne, if you just build on that, you want your heart brain, your gut brain, your head brain to work together and the, the system of another person. So the doctor who says, oh my God, it must be so frustrating for you because it's exam time. What you learn as the patient is that your subjective experience matters. Your subjective experience is inside the other person. So you have what a patient of mine said a long time ago, you, the experience of feeling felt. So you go from being a solo person to realizing you're in, you, your subjective life exists in the other person. So there's a we that's created. That's what parenting is all about. That's what mindset is all about. This is why... You know, I understand we shouldn't be uh, overbearing on our kids. And, you know, when I was raising our kids with my wife, when we were raising our kids, we not meaning you guys and me, but when I was raising with my wife, that we, um, our friends would say, you are talking too much to your kids about how they feel. And I would say, I don't think so. And then, you know, Caroline and I would, would do this whole process um, and she's been meditating for a long time. She just wrote this incredible book called The Gift of Presence. And even though she's a lawyer, she's, we're, we're so resonant about this stuff. And, you know, we would be guiding them for this internal compass stuff. So as they went through middle school and through high school and it came to go to college, we encouraged them to find out what they really cared about, to know what they felt and to pursue that um, direction in their lives. Our friends wanted them to build their resumes, get them ready to get into the great college and all this stuff. And when it came to that whole process, where I was made fun of for talking too much about the internal world to our kids, when you compare those kids, because they would come to me later as adults, young adults, the emptiness they felt that they had built a life of building a resume and didn't have any idea who they really were. They had fantastic physical sight and on paper, you know, they can get into the fancies of the universities and stuff, but they were empty inside. So now you say, well, what was the difference? You know, well, the difference was those parents really did not try to build mind sight inside their kids so that they would have this internal lens that would direct them and they realize it doesn't matter where you go to college. It doesn't matter what your resume looks like. It matters that you're coming with meaning and purpose and kindness, that you have resilience, that you really are wide open to what's going on, that you're curious and you hold on to that curiosity. You know, and so this mindset business is, um, if it's built from articulating things, this gets to Laria, your question, your comment back is, I agree, we shouldn't tell people what they feel. But just like that physician didn't just say, well, how do you feel? You know, because that's such a generic comment. How do you feel? So you really want to be careful with exactly what you're saying. Don't 
say what another person's feeling, but you can phrase it this way. I imagine, since you're a student, you may be, I don't know, I'm not a magician, feeling frustrated that you have a cold routine and you go, yeah, I am feeling frustrated. You know, not, not, I see from the corner of your lips, you're probably really worried about the shame you felt when your uncle didn't come <laughs> over for your friend's bar mitzvah. You know, you don't, no, you don't, you don't do that. You don't take wild guesses, but you, you say, I wonder, I imagine, or, or like when I said, when the kid fell on the sidewalk, the parent says, um, you may be feeling, you know, maybe this, uh, this may have been really scary for you. Because what that does is allows the kids versus the generic statement, what do you feel? There's no sign in that. It's almost like a, a little computer could say, it. you know, when you place relationships at the top of the priority list of what we do as parents and what we should be doing in schools and what we should be doing even in our society, then what we can do is realize that those relationships actually support the next kind of R is reflection, that this internal compass, this mind sight ability to sense the mind, when you teach your kid to sense it in themselves, they can regulate themselves. It's mentionable, it's manageable, and they actually have increased empathy and compassion. And amazingly, when you get in touch with your heart and your intestine, you have more wisdom and intuition you know, so if if uh, if I'm talking to my kid when they were younger and she or he was trying to make a decision about whether to go to a party or not go to a party, I would say, what is your heart telling you? Huh? Yeah. What is your heart telling you? What does your intestine tell you? Because literally there are <laughs> networks, information processes around there. I know it sounds we weird. T-shirts made. What does your intestine tell you? <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I love you hearing yeah. and I love you saying this because I'll say these no, things at critical. home all the time. But he's a scientist. No, the, so people are like, oh, my God, you're so like yoga, namaste, crunchy granola. You go validated there. it. Exactly. Yeah. His scientific no, But facts. having a gut feeling. I mean, we say that in as a colloquialism, but it's true. If you actually bother to take a second to have the mindset to listen to what your gut was intuitively telling you, um, you know, it, it definitely guides you in the right way. I, because we're just, we are just scratching the surface with you and we are just getting the highlights of, of what we can learn here. I don't want to, um, leave you without asking just to tell people about the yes brain versus the no brain, if you would, because I think there's a lot parents in specific can learn from that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, every one of these books, parenting from the inside out to explore yourself, whole brain child to figure out how to Help your child get an integrated brain, no drama discipline, and realize discipline means teaching skills, not punishing. And the new one, you know, the power of showing up is about what you can do as a parent to show up. These are all have their own themes. The theme of the Yes Brain book is about this really um, interesting finding. You know, I, um, I, I edited an academic series of books, and there's 75 books that I've edited, and, and some of them really focus on deep structures up beneath the top of the brain, the cortex, that are involved basically when you're reactive and are going to fight, flee, freeze up like tighten your muscles, or even faint, versus when you are not in that reactive state, you're in a receptive state. When you're open, you're connecting, you feel flexible and fluid and recept you know, receptive. That's receptive versus reactive. So I had been doing in workshops for a long time, this um, fun, but painful exercise. This, let's, I don't want to call it fun. This, um, this instructional exercise 
where I would say no really harshly seven times, pause, and then say yes really soothingly seven times, pause, and that people put a hand on their chest and a hand on their abdomen, switch it out, and then we would basically talk about how people felt. And people would say things like, oh, with the no, I felt like I wanted to fight or I want to run or I want to hit you or, you know, I felt like I couldn't move or reminded me of my childhood. And those reactive states for a kid are very, very painful when you're reactive. And learning how to go from reactivity to receptivity is what the Yes Brain book does. The Yes Brain is basically the state of the brain that's receptive, ready to learn, ready to connect. Um, and when you're in a receptive state, you have all sorts of changes in your physiology that are positive. So kids who are, you know, uh, in painful situations, whether it's in their communities of poverty or are being emotionally mistreated or physically or sexually mistreated, you know, they can get repeated in these reactive states. And unfortunately, there are all these changes that happen. I don't, don't need to review them all here, but there are changes that happen in the brain's growth that make it more likely to become reactive in the future. So what you want to do, if that's your child may have a temperament where they tend to be that way, is give them the opportunity to basically expand that container of consciousness, realize when they're in a reactive no-brain state, and then learn the techniques, which we teach in the book, for moving from reactivity toward neutral, toward receptive. And, and when you learn those skills, the beautiful thing is, it's like a win-win situation because you go, wow, now I know I have the capacity. When I flip my lid and I'm reactive and fighting, fleeing, freezing, or fainting, I now know, okay, that happened, it's temporary. And now I have the skills, that's what mindset skills are. I have the skills to be aware of what's going on, number one, and then to change what's happening when I need to, like reactivity, move to receptivity. So I'm not helpless. So ironically, even in the future now that I get into reactive states, they're less intense. They can be gotten out of more easily because I have this deep knowing that this is not going to last forever and I can do something about it. And that itself starts guiding you back to receptivity to a yes brain state. Oh, it's so good. I know. So we have this thing on our on our podcast, little favorite thing. And sometimes we're talking about things like, you know, skincare. And then sometimes we're talking about something as deep as what we've been talking about um, this session. So is there something, is there a tool that you would recommend for parents? Yeah. Um, you know, let's see. That's so interesting. You know, I, I, I don't know if this is a thing, but my favorite uh, thing that comes to my mind is if you take a time every day just to to acknowledge what you are grateful for. You know, I love gratitude things. My wife and I do this every evening before we go to sleep. We look at each other and we say, this is what I'm grateful for in you. This is what I appreciate in you. And it is just such a beautiful thing. And I think you could do that with your kids. I mean, you don't have to um, make a big deal of it, but you can say, wow, I really appreciate these these things. And, you know, it's a way of connecting us with each other and supporting relationships. It's a way of really letting um, us cherish the positive things in life because life is challenging. So we really want to put some energy into bringing in this positive energy. And it really brings love to the, the front of, of living. And I think that's so important. 
I, I love, love that. That's a good one. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, I know. That's, really that's good. a really good way, especially like if you're mad. One of my favorite things to do when you're really angry is just say something really nice to the other person, even when you don't <laughs> want to. <laughs> uh, um, and Oh, where can we follow you and learn more? Oh, you can follow me. You can follow me at drdansiegel.com, drdansiegel.com, where you'll find lots of uh, different things you can get involved with. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Great to see you too. Mom That was Dr. Dan Siegel. Um, I mean, Daphne and I asked each other afterwards, like, could we have him in for like four more times after this? Because he was just so inspiring and so just warm. And I love the mixture of, you know, him being a scientist and super. And a dad. You know, and a dad. He would, he's, you know, but he's a scientist, but then he's a dad and he's like asking them to listen to their gut, their feelings. Your body has a reaction, a physical reaction to all of your thoughts and emotions. And that is essentially what he's saying. The other thing he said was feeling, um, um, I feel felt. Like that was such an interesting thing. We all have felt that before where you feel like you're going through something so difficult and challenging and, and sad or isolating. And the minute you realize someone else has been through that before or that someone else is going through it with you or that they see and acknowledge your pain and are not trying to fix it or diminish it or make it go away because it's uncomfortable for them, immediately your shoulders relax. Immediately, I mean, even on, on Instagram, like you, like you feel that when you find that community of people that, I mean, not that, not that it should only happen on Instagram, but like that's one place where lots of us connect with each other. And like you do feel seen and um, and you see in return with people who are in a similar experience well, of life. Well, you realize which I, how, how similar it is. I mean, with, with the, the miscarriages that I've had this year and being able to share them. Right, that's what made me think of it. Um, and the amount of people, not only that say the same thing that happens to them, but I've learned when bad things have happened to me and, you know, I've been very lucky in life and, and I still am, but so I haven't, the pain that I've experienced this past year is a little foreign. Mm -hmm. And um, I have learned when people say, I'm so sorry, I'll say, yeah, me too, rather than, oh, it's okay. I've caught myself a couple times taking care of other people's emotions when it is about me. And I say, yeah, I'm really sorry too. Yeah, it really sucks. And being able to kind of be with my own pain, like that quote said, being with my own pain and saying, yeah, I, I know it really, it really is hard right now, but I know I'm going to be okay. And I keep on saying that I'm not okay right now, but I'm going to be okay. And I can say, I mean, that happened four weeks ago today and I am better, you know, as I cry. <laughs> how I went there I don't know mom brain okay. no but I look that's this is exactly what he said like we as yeah. humans have lost um we forgot to put the the preference on teaching each other and teaching ourselves to be okay with that emotional feeling and we're afraid of it and we run from it and we think it's weak and we you know all these stupid things that we've been told and it's not it's it's ultimately our strength and it's our strength to be able to connect with each other so and then once we can do once we admit it then there's something we can do about it and once we if we don't admit it, there's nothing that we can do about it you know so anyway on that note yeah. ending with tears and now it's time for our favorite. <laughs> now it's time for our favorite things.
What's your favorite thing? My favorite thing today is a documentary called America the Beautiful. And it's something that I watched a long time ago, maybe about a decade or so ago. It's not a new documentary. And it talks a lot about... It talks a lot about eating disorders, and you guys all know, as I've said in this, that it, you know I struggled with an eating disorder for a very long time, and um, and I was capable of healing myself um, from it. Um, and I would say that this eating, this um, documentary that I watched, kind of right post when I feel like I I kicked my problem. Is, can you kick a problem? Yeah, you, you don't your... lick a problem. You kick no, a problem. Yeah, you definitely don't want to lick a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so like you kind of get there, like, kind of. Okay, so the so when I feel like I I got over, I it was um, I watched this documentary, and I loved um, certain things from it. But one of them um, was um, how they say don't ever criticize your body. Like don't say don't don't stand in front of the mirror like oh my god I'm so fat or oh I need to go on a diet or oh my god I look so horrible today. Any of these things because your kids are always listening mm-hmm. and your kids associate themselves with you. Don't just like criticize yourself. You can be a little self-deprecating here and there, but like don't have it be something that's super negative because your kids will start to identify with that and it will pull them down. Well, so you're perfect to them. So if you're, and and you know everything to them at this age. And so if you, the perfect who knows everything are saying that something's wrong with you, like that rocks their whole universe. But the tricky thing, the tricky thing is, and you know, um, Dr. Siegel talked about this a little bit, like it's important for them to see our emotions as well. You know, with with my miscarriage, my kids saw me cry. They didn't yeah. really understand what happened because they're so little. But they saw me cry. Yeah. And for them, seeing that mommy's not always okay, but again, I would tell them I'm going to be okay. And seeing them go through your places where mommy like because eventually they're going to figure it out Mm -hmm. eventually they're going to realize mommy's not perfect and so if they get that in the moment that allows them to not be perfect but when it has has to do with something like what you look like what you're you know good at what all these different kinds of things you just be really careful and mindful and i highly recommend going and watching this um, documentary because it um, it definitely affected my parenting long before i was a parent awesome like i haven't seen it i can't wait to watch um so since you're going to have a movie night, you should have a bath also before <laughs> or after. Um, um, my favorite thing this week is, so Nika, uh, who just turned two, had a horrible, horrible cold recently. Like just gross, snotty baby. So sad. Um, and I was looking for ways to make her more comfortable and like less snotty without, without constantly snot sucking her or making her blow her nose. And just like, so I, anyway, I started putting her in a bath a bunch of times a day, a to boost her body temperature. So, you know, she would fight it off, but also, um, just to, you know, relieve her congestion. And I found these, um, eucalyptus ease bath drops from California baby. I use a lot of California baby actually, cause I find they're a really clean line. No, like, you know, unnecessary chemicals or fragrances or additives, things that would be irritating to a baby, um, or young kids. And, and anyway, these drops smell like eucalyptus um, and they have some citrus in them too, I think. And they just really helped clear out. It made the bathroom smell beautiful. It was something that um, I feel like my older kids wanted to get on, in on as well. I know like p- people would say keep the germs like isolated. It's not possible in a big family. I was like, all of you just get sick at the same time. So I'm not dealing with it dominoes wise. And actually the older two have not gotten sick. I think it's because Nika's new preschool. I think that like, you know, they're exposed to all different kinds well, of things. It's also something that they've been exposed to. Correct. Before, they have stronger know? immune yeah. systems than she does. And they all get their vitamins every day. So she kicked it pretty quickly. But this was something they all wanted to get in on the bath for, which was very cute. And I bet it works for adults too. So I, I think it's something just good to have. Like I have my little arsenal cabinet of things that I 
rely on when the kids are feeling under the weather. And this is a new addition to that closet. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Tell your friends. Email us, mombrainpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And follow us on Instagram at mombrain. We're on YouTube. All, all the good stuff. But please, the most important thing is spread the word because the more that we hear from you and the more people that hear from people like Dr. Siegel, we're really capable of helping the next generation, helping families, and trying to figure it all out, right? And if you, ha- if you try one thing this week or you have a story to share with us about putting any of these practices to good use, let us know. I love to hear that. Email us. Bye. Have a great week. Bye, guys. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Mom Brain is a Gallery Media Group original production.